0: Welcome on this Remembrance Day weekend. Wherever you are in your journey of faith and journey of life, we are glad that you are here. We are doing a series on the book of Exodus. It is the second book in the Bible in the Old Testament. It tells the story of Israel's freeing themselves, actually God freeing them, uh, from slavery to Egypt and then moving toward the promised land of his promise. And so we are in the middle of that story now. Uh, if you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen to a phenomenally powerful sermon on God passing over uh, Israel in the final plague that allowed them to be free. But now we're picking up the scene right afterwards, and we are in Exodus chapter 14. And we are at the scene of the Red Sea. And so to come and read us from Exodus 14, I'm gonna ask Hannah. Now there are a couple of verses that I forgot to tell our team to include at the very end, but they give a little bit more closure and completion to the story. So Hannah's gonna read a couple verses after what's printed in your bulletin and what you will see on the slide, and you'll see why as we go forth, but Hannah.
1: So the scripture reading for today comes from Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Well, uh, a number of you have commented on my wardrobe choice uh, this morning. I am not trying to imitate Steve Jobs. Uh, I have a much simpler explanation. All, all of my collared shirts are still at the dry cleaner. I forgot to pick them up yesterday. So. This is what I had. Uh, If you have have not been taking a break from social media, you will probably have seen this video by now. It's all over Instagram. I assume it's all over TikTok. It's all over Facebook Reels. It's the picture of the young woman at Yellowstone Park in the midst of this glorious vista and landscape, right up beside a bison, a huge bison mammoth, majestic buffalo. And she is taking pictures of herself, IG snapshots of herself with the bison there, ignoring her and resting, or so it seems. And what you see and hear in the background of the video are all these people going, what is that idiot doing? Some people think bisons look beautiful, majestic, even cute. So they treat them like domesticated pets. There's another video going around of a woman reaching out her hand to pet one, and it charges her, and she flees in terror. And as I was looking that up, I found out there's another woman who went out thinking that bison was domesticated, and she got gored and sustained serious life-threatening injuries. These people think that these wild, majestic animals look like domesticated pets. How did that work out for them? One woman got away with it, but got mocked virally. One woman fled for her life. One woman ended up in the hospital. And we find their foolishness funny. They're being elected for the Darwin Awards. They are being mocked mercilessly. We shake our heads. We close our phones. We get up and then we treat our God just like they treated the bison. We try to domesticate God. We try to make God fit into our nice Instagram branded world, our social media narrative. We try and create a God we can pet, a God that looks nice and reasonable to the world that we present ourselves to. And this passage invites us to ask ourselves the same question that we asked those videos. How's that working out? How do you think that will work out? Because men and women, the God we meet in this passage is no domesticated bison. The God we meet here is the God who is. He's a wholly different kind of God, he's a sovereignly glorious God, he's an unfathomably good God. He's an incomprehensibly gracious God. He's a God who hardens unrepented people for His glory, who protects undeserving people for His glory, and delivers ungrateful people for His glory. The God we meet here is the God who is, and there is no other than the God who is, and He is not, a domesticable pet. We meet this God and no other. And the question this passage invites us to ask is, are we ready to meet with and have communion with the God who actually is? Because this God hardens unrepentant people for His glory, protects undeserving people for His glory and delivers ungrateful people for His glory, and He is the only God that exists. This is the God who is. Are you ready to meet with Him? We're going to look at these three points. The God who hardens, a sovereignly glorious God, the God who protects. An unfathomably good God, the God who delivers, an incomprehensibly gracious God. Let's look at the first, a God who hardens. In the first paragraph of your bulletin, you see God setting up this whole Red Sea miracle, and He does it unusually. He appears to Israel in a glory cloud. If you've read Exodus, you know this glory cloud will appear regularly and will lead Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. He leads Israel here after they've just left Egypt right after the Passover, and he leads them to turn back toward Egypt and appear confused. He leads them to appear vulnerable to an Egyptian leader who might have second thoughts. And then he hardens Pharaoh's heart to have those second thoughts. And then perhaps the central verse of this whole passage in verse 4. He says these words, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Men and women, welcome to God. I will give context that maybe helps us understand this better, but let's be honest. Let's be transparent. This is the God who is. He's a sovereign God. He governs the universe. We do not live in an impersonal universe that he occasionally intervenes in. We live in a transparently, relentlessly, completely personal universe that he sovereignly governs. And he hardens people for his purposes to display his glory. In Exodus chapter 9, it says, he promises this, for this purpose I've raised you up, he's talking to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So let's give it a little context so we can understand it better. How does God harden? Because this is a very sobering, even shocking idea that God would harden people. Well, if you look at the story of Pharaoh carefully, there are 10 plagues. And after each plague, his heart gets hardened. But what we note about it is the progression. In the first five plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He didn't wanna let all of these slaves go. Then it says God hardened his heart in plague six, and then in plague seven, Pharaoh does it to himself again. And then finally, in the final three, it's God, 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 hardening his heart, so there's a process. God allows him to harden his own heart and reveal the depths of his own selfishness, cruelty, and evil, and then God turns him over to those desires and no longer restrains them. That's what's happening here. After almost 100 years of slavery, then all of these plagues, God had been patient, God had warned him, God had relented after Pharaoh had said, okay, I'll stop, I'll let you go and lied to them. God had given him chance after chance and he wouldn't repent, he wouldn't change. And so God allowed the natural selfishness, power, hunger, and sin in Pharaoh to be given its full freedom. Men and women, all it seems to take in his life is for God to not intervene, and he hardens himself. And he does that because he wants us to know that's us too. Outside of God's intervention, with no boundaries, the dark parts of you, unrestrained, will come forth. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone everyone to our own way. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous. No, not one. How does God harden? He simply removes the restraints and gives us over to our own desires. Who does he harden? Pharaoh, he hardens. Pharaoh is an example for us because what Pharaoh shows is unrepentance. God has kept warning him. God has given him increasing levels of plagues. They have not listened. He has not listened. He has not changed. He keeps thinking, oh, that's the last one. Uh, I can control God. God won't bring any more of these plagues. He's not that bad. He's not that fierce. He's not that relentlessly committed to what he's asking me to do. He keeps reducing God to some kind of domesticated God that he can handle. How did that work out for him? If you are here and God has been poking you and prodding you and calling to you to change something, to repent of something, to come to Him, stop petting the bison. God will do what He promises to do. He will turn you over to your selfish desires if you continue to resist his call on your life. And that gets to the final thing. Why does God do this? It seems to me fairly clear from these scriptures that God hardens to reveal. He hardened Pharaoh's heart to reveal the truth to Pharaoh and to everyone else what was in there. He gave Pharaoh power. And power doesn't create what is inside of you, but power gives you the freedom and lack of restraint to unleash what is already inside of you. Paul Tripp, a best-selling author and counselor, did a video interview. He's published it online, and he discussed this dynamic. He said, human beings don't usually wake up desiring way more boundaries in their lives. It's very easy, he said, to be consistently looking on the other side of God's boundaries and wanting what you see. Like a person who struggles with their weight and general health, looking at a skinny person and saying, if only I was skinny like them, I could what? Have better health? No, I could eat whatever I wanted. That's how our mind works. He continued, we do that with everything. We say, if only I was rich. I could spend whatever I want, whenever I want. It goes right back, he said, to self-rule and independence. This is who we are, and not just Pharaoh. The Apostle Paul, in, describe, in discussing our own desire for independence, said this about why God does these things. He was talking in this context, it's Romans chapter 7, about why God gave us commandments Commandments, like hardening, are mirrors to show us who we are. And he says this in Romans 7, 13. The commandments are good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good, God's commandments, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. God hardens men and women so that sin may be shown to be sin. And once that happens, once we realize the sinfulness of sin against the backdrop of our own darkness, which we finally see, the sinfulness of our own sin, which we finally recognize, against this landscape, we can look at the God who is more clearly and see that God is completely righteous and justified in judging us. Look around, men and women, It's Remembrance Day weekend, and we think of those who have fallen in war, and we think of the wars that are, and we see the mess that we have made of this world. It should stop our arguments and objections against God. We need to simply look at the landscape of our own sin, selfishness, oppression, and evil, look into our own hearts and go, well, maybe God is justified in judging us. I would love to see the pictures of that woman's Instagram account. I think she's been shamed into never publishing them. But if I did, I would see a a close-up of her face and then the part of a bison. It would be cute. Without context, it would look Instagram-worthy. But when you see the video of the vast panorama of the landscape of Yellowstone National Park and the beauty of the mountains and the glory of the bison, she being there, straightening her hair and getting the best pictures, just looks silly and wrong. When you meet God, the God who is, He will meet you and shine the pure light of His holy nature upon you. And who can stand that light? Who can be justified in that moment? All of our pretensions of wanting to domesticate God will look silly and wrong. God will be glorified by showing us the reality of the darkness in us. And then, men and women, then we will realize, you know what, we actually need the God who is. He will meet you and he will show you the darkness all around and we will realize I can't fix what's wrong with this world. Neither can you, neither can the United Nations. We're not good enough, we're not pure enough, we're not smart enough, wise enough, or powerful enough to solve what ails our world. We need a sovereign God, an all-powerful God, an all-wise God a gracious and forgiving God. And God will be glorified by our realizing that that's what we need. We need the God who is. Because only the God who is has the power and desire to change what is to what should be. Only the God who is has the ability to deliver anybody from any kind of deep and systemic slavery. Only the God who is has the goodness and the wisdom to make right what is wrong. And that God, ladies and gentlemen, is right here. That's the God we meet. So let us humble ourselves and meet the God of glory. Secondly... He's not only a God who hardens, He's a God who protects. He's a God who's unfathomably good. The scene switches now to the Israelites. It's the second paragraph in your bulletin. And the people of God lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians who just let them go are marching after them. It's a shock to them. You and I would feel the same way. These people have endured tragic oppression for well over a hundred years. They've been slaves. Finally, God has passed them over in the Passover and caused Pharaoh and the Egyptians to release them, and they're marching out in triumph. And suddenly, they look back, and there's 400 chariots In the distance, and there's probably 20, 30, 40,000 troops following the chariots and the charioteers. 600,000 Jewish people, unorganized, fleeing, no army, no weapons hardly. Coming at them is the standing army. Egypt had over 100,000 people in their standing army. I doubt that the whole army was after them, but probably a good chunk. So they're afraid. It's a natural response. We feel for them. But now, men and women, because we are so conditioned by our culture to have sympathy with anyone who's been the victims of oppression, we want to sympathize completely with them, and the Bible confronts our own sympathies. Because there's no indication in the text that Pharaoh wants to kill them. In fact, he wants to recapture them. They should have thought about that because they knew he'd tried to keep them. But what do they do? They catastrophize. Oh, he, he wants to kill me. They, it says they cry out to the Lord, so they go to God. Really? This is them going to God, I think. The, the, the language of the Hebrew makes it, it says they cried out to the Lord, then they said to, no, it doesn't say then, then it says, it says they said to Moses. And so I can't tell linguistically whether they're crying out to the Lord is them saying these words to Moses or right after they cry out to the Lord, they say to Moses, but either way, the narrator wants you to focus on their complaining. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They are ticked. They're angry. Character in the Old Testament is revealed through dialogue. And so the author here, Moses, focuses upon their words to reveal their heart, and where's their heart? Their heart is to doubt God's goodness and to fall back upon their functional idols. It'd be better to be a slave in Egypt because then we were safe and we were well fed. I would prefer the security of slavery to the vulnerability of freedom. I would prefer knowing where my next meal is rather than trusting God to provide it. That's what they're saying. Men and women, that's what we say too. Confronted by a hostile culture, so many of us would prefer the security of knowing where the next meal is to the beauty and the freedom of trusting God with whatever he calls us to do. So we enslave ourselves to jobs we don't really like and lies we're not really proud of and moral choices and compromises we don't really want to discuss because it makes us know where our next meal is and keeps us safe. That's the temptation in front of all of us. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, said this, it is the normal state of the human heart to try and build its identity around something else other than God. And in the crucible of danger, affliction, and vulnerability, they show where they're putting their functional trust. Security, food, stability, even if it means slavery. And we're not so different are we? I remember in my last year of practicing law, I was driving down to the law firm. Four or five years earlier, at a student retreat, I'd felt God calling me into ministry. I'd said, I'll do it, but later. First, I want to pay off my school loan. Then I want to practice law and make sure it's not for me. I want to clear all the rubble behind me, So I'd done that. It was now five years after I'd made God, heard God call me. And I'm driving down, and I have my nice little red German car. Not my Italian one, my German one. I have my nice little Italian suit and my German tie. And I'm driving, and I feel the Lord saying, when? The time has come. And as I was driving, I began to cry. Lord, I've always craved respect. I've always craved status. I finally got it. And now I've got to give it away. It was a hard moment. We don't have this same calling from God. But we all have that moment. When God's calling you to step out of your comfort zone and trust him, to do his will, to serve others in unique and crazy sacrificial ways, to proclaim him to people that might not take it well. And in verse 13, here's the reply from God through Moses. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. God says, trust me. Stop doubting my goodness. I passed over you. I had some other third party take the debt of your sin. And I'm here now in the midst of your afflictions. I'm here with you and I will fight for you. I won't remove you from difficult, afflictive times. I won't remove you from times of discomfort. I will keep you in places of needing to trust me. But I will meet you there and I will be present with you. I will accompany you and I will fight for you. And then it says in the narrative, the glory cloud which has been leading them to the Red Sea switches to behind them, between them and the oncoming Egyptian army and blocks them, is a firewall around them. God is this kind of God and no other. He doesn't promise to deliver you from every affliction. He promises to walk with you through every affliction. And he promises here to, to, to fight for them, to protect and to deliver them. And I have to ask you, Who is he protecting? Who is he promising to deliver? An ungrateful, fearful people who have already forgotten his great work of freeing them from the Egyptians in the Passover. A people who are ready already to return to a life of slavery and safety rather than freedom and guidance by him. Men and women, that is unconditional goodness. That is beautiful mercy and pardon and grace. Just because God has allowed you to get into trials and afflictions and perhaps feel the hostility of your culture does not mean he has abandoned you or he has stopped loving you. It means he's going to glorify himself by being with you and fighting with you and protecting you in the heat of the battle. As one of the elders of our church likes to say, let God be God in your life. Let the God who is be the God who is your God. So I'm here to tell you, let God be God. Finally, he's incomprehensibly gracious because he delivers them. In the final paragraph, he delivers them from the Red Sea. He does the unthinkable. He parts the waters. They walk through. He lifts the cloud. The Egyptians start running after them. They're trying to bridge the gap. The Egyptians follow. The narrative says the chariots and the charioteers get in. Pharaoh is with them. Not clear from the text whether all of the Egyptian army is there. He says he will give glory to all of them and show them his power. But the narrative seems to say it's really only the chariots of charioteers that are in when everything turns. The The pillar of fire, which has been leading Israel through, goes back to being between them, begins to fight between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Psalm 77, which seems to describe this event, says the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. This text says the chariots' wheels started to founder, I think, A thunderstorm turned it to mud, and I think the chariots got ground in there, and the Egyptians realized God's fighting for them, and they turned around, and they tried to flee back to the shore they were at, and the water just washed over them. And the oppressive army and its leader, Pharaoh, are defeated. And the Israelites, the undeserving people whom God has set His mercy upon, Are delivered. The enemy defeated. God's people delivered. That, my friends, is the story of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 10, in talking about this event, it says, our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The New Testament then says, this is a kind of baptism. This is the God Who is the God who sovereignly bends all of history to show his glory. Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. This is the God who is, who shows undeserving people his great love and mercy, who protects them in the battle and then finally delivers them to ultimate safety. This, of course, is the foreshadowing of a different baptism. Because several thousand years later, a Jewish rabbi will appear on the shores of another body of water, the Jordan River, and he will ask a man named John to baptize him, and he will be baptized, and immediately he will go out into the wilderness for 40 days, symbolizing his unity with the people of God who are here going through the water, and then will be in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, Jesus in his baptism, in his wilderness wanderings, was repeating, recapitulating, substituting himself for the people of Israel. He was taking their place, becoming in himself the people of God. Except where Israel complained and rebelled, Jesus complied and then redeemed by ransoming them with his own death. Jesus seeing our sin seeing our ungrateful, undeserving hearts, seeing our desire to return to safety and servitude. Jesus had compassion upon us, and he came to fight for us, but not with weapons, but with blood. Not by killing our enemies, but by letting his enemies kill him. And upon his death, taking our sin upon himself, letting the waters of God's judgment flow over him, taking the just judgment of God upon your and my sin. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because the God who is, is the God who became one of us so that we could be delivered from our slavery to our selfish and fickle hearts and see him as he is and love him as he is because he loves us as we are in our sin and fickleness and brokenness. The Red Sea story, men and women, is the story of the gospel. We were passed over because the judgment that should have fallen on on us fell upon the Lamb of God. We were baptized into that Passover and united with God in Jesus. And in that baptism is the promise to protect us and be with us in the midst of all our afflictions from the darkness of the world. And then finally, a day will come when the true enemies of humanity, sin and Satan, will be gathered and will come forth to attack and they will be defeated and they will be judged, and they, we will be delivered, not to the other side of the Red Sea, but to a whole new creation where there is no more death, no more disease, tears, or evil. A final day of judgment and deliverance is coming for us. This foreshadows that day, and in the end here, Israel is transformed from fearing the Egyptians to fearing, being in awe and wonder of the God of Israel, the God who is. Two applications from the text, fear not. Christians, allow God to rise in your heart in his full sovereign power and glory. Let God be God in your hearts and do not fear the circumstances and the challenges of life. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Fear not. Second application, fear him. Fear him. Him who created you. Him who bends all of history to confront you with himself. He who sent his son to die to allow you to have access to himself. He who delivered you that you may love him and worship him and be in awe of him. Fear him. If you are here, and you're not yet a Christian, who do you fear? Is God simply an abstraction to you? Is He simply an intellectual question? It's usually how they start. Spiritual journeys start with the question, does God exist? It's rational. Secondly, is it reasonable? Is God worth thinking about more and possibly following? And then finally it gets relational. Am I willing to meet him? I say to you, it's always relational. It always was. And I say to you who are Christian, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to trust him. He's sovereignly glorious, unfathomably good incomprehensibly gracious. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us now to meditate upon it wherever we are in our spiritual journey. In Christ's name. Amen. How many questions do I have time for? One? Okay. Well, there are about 18. <laughs> uh, I'll take this one. Is Exodus fourteen nineteen a theanthropic appearance? I've never heard of the word theanthropic, so you got me. This one's obviously above my pay grade. I think, who's the angel of God? In this case, the angel of God uh, is equated with Yahweh himself. in um, sometimes the, there are angels that appear in the Old Testament who have a separate appearance. In some cases, uh, they seem to be God. In some cases, they seem to be partly separate and partly just God. This is one of those third cases. So it could be Jesus, who is both distinct from God and God himself. All right. That is enough for the questions. Let's pray and as I pray, a song of response after that and we'll ask you to rise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and for your grace and for your glory. You relentlessly pursue your own glory by hardening, revealing, protecting, delivering, judging, saving, and dying and rising what manifestations of your glory we have. Richard Sibbs said it best. There is more forgiveness in Christ than there is guilt in sin. Help us to come readily to the cross. Help us come readily to your goodness. You are the God who is. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand for our song of response.